0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop Speakeasy podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. On Friday, July 12th, Lighthouse welcomed 2019 Fort Lyon Fellows Michael Fisher and Sarah Shotland for a reading and audience Q&A. Michael Fisher is a Moth Chicago Story Slam winner, a Arts Cultural Foundation Fellow, and a mentor for incarcerated authors through the Penn City Writers Program. His work appears in Salon, The Sun, Orion, Guernica, The Rumpus, and elsewhere, and his audio essays have been broadcast on CBC Radio's Love Me and the New York Times' Modern Love, the podcast. He recently graduated with his M.A. from the University of Chicago. Sarah Shotlin is the author of the novel Junket and a playwright whose work has been produced in theaters nationally and internationally. She was a 2018 Equal Justice resident artist at Santa Fe Art Institute, where she worked on a collection of essays about her work with the Words Without Walls program, which brings creative writing classes to jails, prisons, and drug treatment centers in Pittsburgh. In addition to directing that program, she's also an assistant professor of English at Chatham University.
1: Hello, thank you for coming today. I'm Manuel Ergon, operations manager here at Lighthouse Writers Workshop and tonight we're joined by two guests uh, sarah shotland and michael fisher who are this year's lighthouse fort lyons fellows and i'll go ahead and yeah let's give them a hand (laughs) i'll go ahead and give you a little bit of information about fort lyon and our fellowship there so fort the fort lyon supportive residential community provides recovery oriented transitional housing to homeless individuals. The program combines housing with counseling, educational, vocational, and employment services for up to 300 homeless and formerly homeless persons from across the state of Colorado, with an emphasis on serving homeless veterans. Yeah, we'll give that a hand, that's that's a good mission. And so Lighthouse, I believe since 2015, has partnered with Fort Lyon to have a Writer in Residence program. And the Writer in Residence program unites the Lighthouse mission of providing the highest caliber of artistic education, support, and community for writers and readers in the Rocky Mountain region with the overall mission of the Fort Lyon supportive residential community to help participants explore personal histories and provide a forum for practicing creative exploration and to discuss behavior, addictions, and recovery. We're going to start with Sarah, and she's going to share an essay that she wrote, and she could share a little bit about herself as well.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Uh, I start my residency at Fort Lyon on Monday, so um, I'm excited to see what it will bring and the people I'll meet. I'm an English professor in Pittsburgh at Chatham University, and we have a program at Chatham called Words Without Walls where we teach creative writing in jails and prisons and um, drug treatment centers around Pittsburgh. And so um, the essay that I'm gonna read tonight is a little bit about that and might give a little bit of um, background into why I'm interested in doing a residency like this. So this essay is called How to Disappear. Here is how they disappear, slowly but then completely. The phone calls go from once a week to once a month, then a text message here or there, a string of emails at two in the morning full of drunk poems and questions like, how am I supposed to stop shooting dope when the asshole guard who raped me at the county jail likes all the Facebook pictures of my four-year-old daughter? I return the emails when I wake up I try to take the phone calls, try to remember to extend invitations to come to literary readings, send links for free counseling. I always sign the correspondence with love or you've got this or I'm proud of you. My writing students from jails and prisons and rehab centers, even though they are disappearing, they keep writing their stories down as if the ink will provide evidence once they've gone. Here is how they disappear. Mostly to heroin, but also to handguns. I've come to see these things not as different, but as two sides of the same buffalo nickel, hot and sweaty in all our palms, burning holes in our pockets until they find the perfect time to detonate. I look up statistics as if numbers will give me solace or prove me wrong. 47,000 handgun deaths this year, 52,000 heroin overdoses, to say nothing of the other ways drugs kill us. Here's another way they disappear. First, to themselves, microscopically, imperceptibly. Only later do they disappear to those around them because the people who love us manage to find ways to glimpse the familiar even as our eyes become strangers in the mirror. No, first we disappear to ourselves. Like Tara, who when I met her had never even visited a city, who'd never been outside rural western Pennsylvania. When I met her at the county jail, she wrote pieces about not fitting into her housing unit, how all the other girls were talking about drugs. Tara had smoked pot once in high school. It made her sick. In class, she rarely spoke in volumes above a whisper, and when she did, she inevitably broke down in tears about how much she missed her children and her dog. She stayed at county for two years. The last time I saw Tara, she told me she'd married a man through a toilet bowl. I'd heard about this from staff, how the plumbing in the building allowed for makeshift telephones to the cells directly above and below one another. Drain the water from the toilet bowl and thrust your head toward the bottom, project your voice or whisper, make a love connection. Tara, in her new white girl braids, told me proudly she'd found a new man who treated her like a queen. Her speech was full of hilltop slang. She'd gotten a shitty tattoo of a rose and crossbones on her wrist. She bragged about making the best jail juice in the whole place. There she was, disappeared. When I use the bathrooms at the jail and at the prison, the mirrors are foggy, made of something other than glass, I assume for safety, something unbreakable, something that can't splinter into shards. Looking into the distorted, gray, non-reflection, I imagine it might be easy to forget what I look like, to slowly become convinced that I'm not full of specific detail. The new wrinkle I grimace at on my forehead, gone. Forgetting the particular shade of hazel that names my eyes. Without the truth staring back at me, I could so easily begin reflecting the faces around me instead of my own. Here's how they disappear. Into unmedicated freedom. Freedom that doesn't provide psychiatric care or follow-up visits or counseling like will will wrote poems about love long winding curly cue poems that profess the kind of love even fairy tales don't claim is real and he wrote poems about a smashing kind of violence rip your teeth out violence no one will recognize your face again violence will was teacher's pet especially for an unexperienced teacher who often fumbled over her words, explained complicated ideas with even more confounding examples. I was a teacher who was grateful for the student who always had an answer, a comment, who raised his hand, always did the homework. Will never stopped smiling. Once he asked me, Sarah, is it possible to write something happy? I shrugged. (laughs) It must be, I said, but I don't know how to do it. The next week, I brought him the romantics, the Byron and Blake poems that pontificated on the value of love above all else. Will devoured them. When he got out of county, he came to every literary event, attended each and every workshop we offered on campus, took the mic at all the readings. He brought his girlfriend, Precious. One night, the love poem he recited was so amorous, the audience thought he'd propose right then and there. They broke up a few months later, and Will wrote about that, too. He asked me out on dates, and I said politely and firmly, no, no, another no, one more no. The last time I heard from Will, he sent me an email with a poem about broken promises and one more entreaty. I could keep you warm, he wrote. Don't keep yourself cold all winter. The truth is if I'd met Will anywhere outside the county jail, I probably would have taken him up on his offer. He was handsome and charming and talented. He had strong shoulders. The truth is I often changed clothes two or three times before I went to class when he was my student. I wanted to look nice. I wanted to stay within the dress code, but just within it. As the years went by, my strategies changed on this front, but in those first classes with with Will, my body was a strategy that I was willing to employ as quick as a rubric or a great anthology because on so many nights, it seemed like all I had. A week after that last email, Will took Precious into the woods behind her house and shot her. Then he drove to a cousin's house and shot himself. Will told me once that he knew it was wrong, but he was most stable in prison. My psych meds are expensive, Sarah, he'd said. It's not cheap to have psychosis. He laughed when he told me this. Will was always in a good mood. I only knew Will in jail on those expensive stabilizing psych meds that let his brain smile, write poetry, read all of William Blake. And I'm glad those are my memories of Will. Glad I'll always know the side of him that wanted proof that poets too could be happy. That we don't only put pen to paper in despair. And I'm glad that I didn't know Precious, as selfish as that might seem. Because it's easier that my affection for Will not be complicated by affection for his dead girlfriend, for her children, for the violent ends. Just like that, all disappeared. And here's how they disappear out in the street, broad daylight, begging for change for a get well bag. Lisa jumps in and out of my life mostly when she needs something. When I move out of my apartment, she comes in a borrowed truck for a twin mattress and some bookshelves. I see her on Liberty Avenue twice. Once, she tells me she's got a new waitressing gig at Thai Cuisine. The next time, she says she's staying under the Bloomfield Bridge, but she's gonna get to a methadone clinic soon. Then I see her at the Sunoco, catty corner to the hipster bar, both of us buying cigarettes. She says she's with her pap, but when she jumps into the Chevy idling at a pump, he doesn't look like anyone's grandfather I've ever met. Months later, she texts. She writes, I fly a sign on the corner of Penn and Fifth Avenue most days. It's a few blocks from Chatham. I always imagine I'll see you driving by on the way to teach. Lisa was a full-time art teacher at the Ritzy All-Girls Private School five years ago. She was married, had two kids, then a third. But her baby was born with a rare genetic heart condition, long QT syndrome. When she tells the story at the rehab center where I meet her teaching creative writing, I gasp. She looks up from her paper. I know, she says, bored at my empathy. It's sad. It is, I say, but... I know long QT syndrome. Lisa looks back, shocked, because most people, most doctors even, don't know about long QT. How? She asks. I tell the story of my boyfriend who died next to me in a movie theater almost 20 years ago now. Long QT we found out a year later. After her baby died suddenly and in the crib, she started taking painkillers. Five years later, she's on a street corner, two blocks from her old teaching job, begging for change to pay her dope dealer. She looks like a dead person. When I see her after the text, I drive her home. She's still managed to keep her little house she bought in Larimer before the divorce and the drugs and the looking like a dead person. How she's held on to it, I don't know. Maybe a mom, some generous aunt. Maybe the ex-husband keeps paying the mortgage. I buy us Thai food green curry and thick noodles with syrupy brown gravy that I know she's too sick to eat. Her house is immaculately clean. The paintings hang on every square inch of wall space, but it smells like dope seeping out of sick skin, a smell I wonder if I'll ever really know how to find the precise words for. I called my boyfriend before I went to pick her up. I'm not going to give her money, I said. Try to find something specific you can help her with, he told me. Ask her if she has an ID. She probably needs an ID. It turns out she does need an ID, but more than that, she needs dope because we both know she's not going to drag herself to the DMV or public health dope sick. I give her $60. I know it's probably wrong, but sometimes I justify to myself, people just need somebody to be kind to them even when they're doing the wrong thing. Sometimes you need someone to help you get well without judging you for being sick. I remember all the times I was dope sick, how humongous the kindness of strangers seemed, how powerful when everybody crossed the street to avoid me coming. I still remember a woman who gave me her yo play at a bus stop, the nurse who quietly brought me a pencil during detox so I could write on the scraps of paper I'd found. The generous regulars at the bar who could look at me and tell I hadn't had my medicine for the day would just slip me a $20 bill before they'd even finished their first beer. These people live in an outsized glory in my memory. They're the heroes who saw me as human. And so, $60. The next night, I get a text message that Lisa has overdosed in the parking lot of the Anala Club during a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. There disappeared. When I went to Lisa's house, I could feel the insides of my own body slowly, serenely disappearing. I was leaving my present Sarah, replacing her with five, six, seven different versions of me. I was a college administrator, responding phenomenally poorly to what was in some sense a work situation And I was a woman in recovery who wasn't going to flinch at a little dope sickness and desperation. I was a writer, and yes, now it's my material. And I was a teacher, and I was also a junkie. What percentage of me went to Lisa's house because I knew it was a place where maybe I, too, could get high? What percentage of me went there to save the day, but only if I got credit for it? And what percentage of me wanted to gaze at the disaster of a woman disappearing in front of me to be grateful that I had somehow been spared, gotten out almost scot-free? Some of me was 15 and some of me was 28, some of me was 35, but at Lisa's house, I remembered why in some part, part, I keep going back to these places, meeting these people who share their stories with me. I felt it. I felt the draw of being a disappeared person, The syrupy allure of fading into a square of wax paper, a thumbprint of black tar. The seduction, the power to say, here I am, but now, watch me, I'm gone. I'm my own magic trick, done, disappeared.
1: Wow, that's awesome.
3: We got to talk after this. So, um, hi everybody. My name is Michael. I just I just got back from Fort Lyon um, like an like an hour ago, um, <laughs> literally. Me, me, Sheila just got here. So um, yeah, and they're really excited because I think usually the way the the fellowship program works out is that um, a writer goes and then leaves and then there's a gap of some length. Um, and so it was really cool that when I went down there for community meeting, which, you know, they meet, everyone meets all together three times a week, and there's about 220 people there at the moment, I was able to say, listen, you know, now is the time if you want to get into writing. I'm here for a month, Sarah's going to be here for a month, you have two whole months of this, um, and people really perked up about that. I think people were really excited to have writers there back to back and feel like some things that they had been thinking about, that, like, this was the time they could actually do it, so, um, I know they're really excited for her to come down there and, um, People already, you know, there, there was a bunch of stuff happening kind of as I was leaving. People were like, can we work on this? I'm like, you can definitely talk to Sarah about that because she's going to be here on Monday. Um, so, but yeah, it, it's, it's a really great place. It's a really special place. And so I, I told everybody in the, in the workshop, I, I, ran, I did workshop four days a week um, in the afternoons, and I said, if there's anything you've written that you like, that, you, that you're proud of, that you want me to read at this reading on Friday, give it to me and I'll read it. Um, so most of this is not m- going to be me. Most of this is going to be people from the workshop. Um, some of it is, like, very slapdashily photocopied as I'm, like, as we're in the car and people are, like, handing me things through the window um, as, as <laughs> happens at the fort. So um, I'm going to try to decipher some stuff here. So sorry if it's not the cleanest read in the world. Um, but this first thing is a, is a poem from a guy named Ronnie Mack. Uh, Ronnie, after writing this, one of the things he pointed out to us is that he's been... In foster care since he was 11. You know, the the sad thing about the fort, the saddest thing about the fort, is not that everyone there is um, has experienced homelessness or that everyone there is struggling with addiction. It's that, on top of that, as a given, most people there uh, were raised in foster care. Most people there have been to prison. Most people there were sexually or physically abused as a child, or both. Um, Because I was prepared for everyone to be struggling with substance abuse. I was prepared for everyone to be formerly homeless, but there was so much else happening. Um, Anyhow, so uh, we read a poem called Where I'm From, and Ronnie did his own version of um, where he is from. So this is Ronnie Mack. I am from tears from the cement wall. I am from red hair and freckles with red eyes. I am from nowhere, but I am from everywhere. I am from black and white. I am from Who-Right. I am from that abandoned car. I am from those far away stars. I am from loneliness. I am from, who is this? I am from, it's so dry. I'm from little trees. I am from piggly wiggly. I am from humidity. I am from a tench hut sun. I'm from humility. I'm from, get off your knees. I am from loss, again. That's Ronnie. Um, these next two are from a woman named Betsy Turnbull. She does um, mainly prose. These are both prose pieces. The first one is called Mom. She wouldn't let you ever take a good picture of her. None of us were photographers, or we may have occasionally gotten a good one of her rare smile, or of her contentedly crossword puzzling or reading. Instead, we have pictures of her making a face, smirking, frowning, holding her hand over her face, or standing there with the rest of us, or in another group, looking aggrieved, or exasperated, or sullen. She never understood that the picture was for someone else, and not about her. She could never accept the love." That's Betsy. And then this is um, Betsy's piece, Inner and Outer Voice. It didn't feel right. I went against my instincts, letting him walk me to my apartment door, rather than leaving me at the door of the complex. But I let him be a gentleman, first mistake. When I opened the door to let myself in, he walked right in after me, uninvited. Had I allowed him a kiss at the door? I don't remember. Nor do I remember what he said or did that made me know he was going to rape me, but there was a moment I knew. This was not foreboding, not a feeling. I knew he was going to rape me in my own apartment. Arrogant bastard. But I'm a talker. I told him I had a roommate that was out with her boyfriend, her very large ex-football player boyfriend, about six foot two or three, and I'm not the best judge of weight, 250, 260 or so, and I won't go quietly. My voice rises. I will scream as loudly as I can, voice even louder. Guess I'll leave. He opened the door and stepped over the threshold. Good idea, as I shut it, trembling. Uh, these next two are from uh, Elizabeth Matthews. If any of you have seen the, the Lighthouse anthology, the volume one of All the Lives I've Ever Lived, uh, Liz, is, Liz is in that anthology. She read the piece from that anthology at, um, there's an open mic, well, there was an open mic down at Fort Lyon last summer that a former uh, fellow had started and it had kind of lapsed by the time I got there and we, we kind of rebooted it. And she read her piece out of the anthology um, at, at, at the open mic, which was really cool. But these, So these are two additional pieces by her. First one is called Sorry. Dear Elliot, I'm sorry I called the cops that night. I was sorry as soon as I did it, and as soon as I did it the second time, begging them to hurry up, and then telling them you had run while you were standing in front of me with the sharp remains of the ukulele I saved up to buy you for your birthday. You were crazy that night on some monstrous combination of meth and whiskey, and I'm sorry that something I said had pushed you too far. You had reached your limit of me, and I should have known to leave rather than fight you off. When I knew the cops were on their way and you were going to jail, going to lose your job and the apartment, and I desperately wanted you not to lose me in the tornado of things, I'm sorry for pushing you into the closet and telling you to hush. In retrospect, that wasn't a great idea. But I didn't want you to face the police the way you faced me, with demonic screams and fists. If you were to throw yourself at them when they came charging through the back door, they would have shot you dead. It happens all the time in this city. I wanted to protect you almost as much as I wanted to protect myself. I tried to keep one officer distracted from the rustling sounds you made in the closet just three feet away. The other cop was patrolling the neighborhood and he would never have found you, but the dog, Jesus fuck, the cop dog, he could smell you. And right when he started barking in your direction, your drunk ass fell out of your hiding place and I didn't hesitate to rush my body between you, two drawn guns, and a crazed German shepherd. I know you don't remember that. Your mind was too soggy to absorb the danger we were both in. I would have been shot and mauled before the danger ever reached you, but I know you just won't remember that. It's always going to be my fault for calling the cops, just like the bruises on my neck and face were my fault. And it's funny to me that the friendly policeman who comforted me in the kitchen kept rubbing my shoulders and insisting you did the right thing. But even now, I'm still so goddamn sorry. And this is Liz, um, this is called About a Couch. In 1998, someone took an old cream-colored couch and left it in a valley ditch where the Texas rains flood every year, forming a river just a few feet away from duplex houses. And in the summer, the grasses and sunflowers get to be six feet tall. Someone left a perfectly worn couch in the valley, and a nine-year-old girl claimed it is her own personal backyard furniture. The best part about the couch were the hollow spaces where she could hide things between rusty springs. She hid every one of her diaries there after her mother started reading them and decided she needed to go to church more than three times a week. She was going five times a week now and hated every minute of it. Then she started hiding her favorite books, mostly science fiction. Those she had to hide because they mentioned magic and science and the power of the mind and are too wonderfully mystical enough to be considered Christian. And that was a problem. Not that her mother would ever bother to read them, but knowing that she might was reason enough to hide them in an old couch in the tall grass in a ditch that floods. She also hid her music, about a dozen cassette tapes with secular pop and rock and punk and ska, all the illicit devil's music, carefully and painstakingly recorded off the radio. That was probably the smartest thing to hide because some years later, in a fit of rage, her mother would locate and destroy a couple thousand dollars worth of music she had never listened to. That would be the day the girl would pack a suitcase and leave and never go back. She would finish high school with honors while living happily on a friend's couch. There would be a lot of couches in the future, some of them safer than others. During that summer in 1998, it was a miracle it didn't flood. Her little soul secrets, her books and music were left untouched out in the open. And she thanked the good earth and she prayed. that was Liz. So some some stuff I had to type up because it was kind of illegible, and so it's on my phone. It's a piece by a guy named Jim who came to, I think, every workshop class, which was rare. Most people have too much going on. It's called Finding the Line. What is it now? What is the time? How can I find my own way to the line? Is it in spirit? Is it on earth? Can it be found? And is it of worth? By leaving the body, by touching the soil, Smoke from the sage, or anointing with oil. Focus on darkness, bathe in the light, running by day, or stillness in night. Find peace on on the pathway, or treacherous stone. In company travel, or set off alone. Our cosmic sum of being is wrapped in a song. I've always felt its rhythm, so clear and so strong. It's raging and driven, like slammed with a fist. It's playful and soothing, ethereal mist the line I will find it around a lost bend to discover in crossing I start over again. And this is Bo. Bo wrote a piece called Tired. Tired of hugs, of drugs, of the city's so-called thugs, of, du- of Dairy Queen conversations about our president's hair plugs, <laughs> of you, of me, of the fantastical idea of you and me of today, of tomorrow, of living a life full of sorrow, of the sun, of the shade, of the pressure to be broke or to be paid, of girls being cute, of girls being mean, of starting with the next girl already preparing for her to leave of sitcoms and nightly news of the trendy names for weed and microbrews, of searching for clues like I'm walking in Sherlock's shoes, of hurting people's feelings at times because I don't properly explain my views, of having to explain the upgraded operation of my brain, of saying I'm sorry for the agony the truth brings. Oh, I need a nap. (laughs) That's (laughs) (laughs) both. Oh, man, this is going to—I'll save this for last because I'm dreading trying to read this. So um, this is from JD. JD likes to write really, really wordplay-heavy poems uh, with a lot of like puns and double entendres and stuff, and um, and, and he makes up words sometimes uh, completely. Yeah. And so, so this is called. So to give you an idea, the title of this poem is "Helixer." It's a quadruple pun: helix, el- elixir, immortal drink of the gods. He licks her. And then H. Eli Rex, which is, you know, the symbol for uh, the resurrected God as king. So this is Helixer by J.D. By the way, there's no content restrictions on uh, submissions for for the anthology, and you'll find that out in a second. So alone, confined in, in this penal womb, picking and licking wounds... My mind, ma- my mad mind, consumes the ever-unraveling runes. Every fresh, bleeding revelation, profound, resounds, swims down and compounds with sweet, silently seething tunes, which brews a new, info-screaming stream of consciousness, dream, quasi-alchemic kiss, gnosis in chrysalis. Sir Bent's sleeping vision. He's a fawn, Donna Vaughan, serpent creeping upon a goddess enchanted forest. Fiora, Fauna, a black Madonna. I O Pandora as box. Pink holy rose implores the cross. Ayin, ay- a yin, a tri holds fractal fecund tryst, whilst the grail-baked babies make a magic Eucharist. As above, so below. The scripture flips, he licks her wound, and with this numinous gift of tongue, she comes undone with bliss. Thus he elicits the elixir, thick, liquor-laced helix-twisted tomes wrapped in genomes, unveiling lumined fishtails wailing up spineal throat, a, surreal, a surreally cerebrated Jesus Christ, an external sabbat of zygote. But soon I I shall arise from this cocoon, baphometized, the serpent's ardent pupil, dream springs, stretched wings realized, shed skin behind, this time I will find the sacred stone, taking lady life for my wife, she's not but mine to fuck. Just like a newborn babe upon the breasts of Babylon, oh sweet milk of stars, the universe shall be mine to suck. (sighs) Alright, that was JD. Uh, Okay, I think that's everybody. all right, and then I brought like I, I just have like three pages of something that I wrote while I was there, because um, it, is, it is a writing residency. At the end of the day, uh, th- th- this is not. So this this is I pulled this out of a 15-page essay. So this is not uh, this is not sequential. So I, I kind of pulled two vignettes out of it, um, the first and like the I don't know something from the middle, just because it was stuff I thought would make sense together. Um, it's about my niece. Uh, I have a I have a niece who just turned four, but this is a portrait of her when she's three. Uh, who has a really rare uh, metabolic disorder, and she's basically like, like allergic to food. Um, I know that sounds weird, but she, she's never eaten solid food in her life. Uh, she gets like a paste in her stomach, and it, it's, it's complicated, but the point is, it's uncurable, it's incredibly rare, and it's cumulative, so chances, and, and it affects her brain, so there's a chance that as she gets older and it builds up that she'll um, never be able to live independently. Uh, very few people with her disease ever lived to be uh, in their 20s. Um, and so, that, so the whole essay in its entirety is about kind of trying to live in the present when you're constantly worrying about, you know, the future of, of all children, but particularly this child. Um, so these are a couple little excerpts from a piece called Medusa, Age 3. I drop by on a Saturday. I knock on the apartment door and you answer, the cap of your gastronomy tube outlined against your unicorn T-shirt. Adeline, who is it? Your mom asks. The fake, surpri- <laughs> the fake surprise of parents everywhere is Uncle Michael. You hug yourself and sway back and forth. That's right, it's Uncle Michael I say. I take off my shoes and leave them by the door, giving you time to muster up your courage and pop the big question. Uncle Michael wants to play gorilla games? I can't contain how delighted I am by this question. I've spent my week hoping to run into someone who wants to play gorilla games, and now it's finally happened. I would love to play some gorilla games. What kind of gorillas are we going to be? You big gorilla, I'm little gorilla. Soon we're crawling across the living room floor, this latest rendition of our ritual. I drag my knees across the carpet and grunt, low, guttural, convincing. You trundle along, keeping your head low so other gorillas won't see you. We circle the coffee table with you out in front, leading us into the wilderness. Below the living room windows, a sign for the Pain Center of Illinois bakes in the summer sun. The center occupies the ground floor of your building, Neck and back issues mostly, so far as I can tell. The electric sign is always on. It's small red bulbs like an old stadium scoreboard. Pain, spell the bulbs. A prediction, a promise. You become obsessed with the gorillas at the Lincoln Park Zoo. You love how expressive they are, how they play with each other. When you stare up at them, they stare right back, considering your 30 pounds and 3 feet, your round face and blue eyes, your blonde hair already beginning to fall out. During your last visit to the zoo, the gorillas got into a fight, shrieking and slamming their bodies around the enclosure. You clung to your mom and screamed for us to leave, then immediately demanded to be taken back to the gorilla house. You wanted more violence encased in glass, the larger violence of the gorilla's impending extinction unknown to you. Today, when it comes time for me to change directions, for us gorillas to walk towards each other around the coffee table, you sit back on your heels and wave a tiny finger at me. No boo, you say, to ensure I won't pop too quickly around the corner and scare you, like the real gorillas sometimes do. Nice gorilla. After gorilla games, you and I walk to the park. You head for the swings at a half run, elbows high like a basketball player clearing out after a rebound. You lay across a swing on your stomach, then look up to read the worry on my face. I do hard things, you reassure me. There's no arguing with this. A moment later, as I reach into a pocket for my phone, is it your mom, is it time for medication? You do a front flip off the swing and land on the crown of your head. Suddenly you're howling and I'm scooping you off the ground and there are wood chips in your gums and I'm a shitty uncle and a worse godfather and years from now, if I outlive you, I'll hate myself for not doing better while you were here. The unbidden thought holds me more tightly than I hold you. I stumble to a bench and try to clean the dirt off your face. A cluster of parents look on from across the playground, all crossed arms and concerned looks. A woman tiptoes over with a chocolate ice cream bar and extends it without a word. Oh, no thank you, I tell her over your screams, because it's easier than explaining that you can't eat ice cream or virtually anything else. I gather you up and start speedwalking out of the park, wondering if I just gave you brain damage. Do you already have brain damage? What was the final word on that? Your parents often soothe you by softly repeating, I know as they rock you back and forth. For lack of a better idea on my part or yours, you try this technique out on yourself. I know, I know, I know. You wail into my chest all the way down Pearson, believing that there's magic in those words, a comfort in being among those who understand. You don't unbury your head until the sign for the pain center of Illinois is in sight. You take a deep shuddering breath and break a string of snot running from your nose to my shirt. You watch from a block away as the bulbs flash a word you aren't old enough to read. Pain, say the bulbs. Home, you whisper. I prefer your guerrilla games to the new games you've thought up. I'm partial to anything that keeps you active since you've started to enjoy the park less and less. The last time we went, you sat against me on a bench and watched the other kids play, no matter how much I coaxed you. All of your new games are calm, quiet, and heartbreaking, harmless, until I insist on weighing them down with writerly irony and melodrama. People always say to write what you know, so I write about you. You make games of what you know, so you play hospital and play sick and play dead. You visit the doctor's office on your bed and insist that Dr. Uncle Michael put on the ratty, pus-colored hospital gloves from your medical play kit. You have the sequence memorized. You ask for the blood pressure cuff and then the thermometer press a plastic needle into the crook of your tiny elbow. Blood, 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 you sing as I fight the nausea slipping up my throat. You turn off the lights and I draw the blinds. We lie down on the floor on our stomachs and you reach out to close my eyelids. We're gonna sleep now, okay, you instruct. Sleep forever. I lie there and listen to you breathe. Sometimes you really do fall asleep and I place stuffed animals atop you one by one carefully waiting for you to wake up with a squeal and shake off the whole pile. You are a game of toddler Jenga, and I'm afraid to blink. I'm sick, you declare with a smile. I fuss over you, tuck you in with a soft tan blanket. I grab an empty amino acid powder container left over from one of your formula batches and stir a magical soup made of air. After I feed you a few hearty spoonfuls, we pretend that you aren't sick anymore. One night when your grandma and I visit, I take a turn feeding you your real formula, and you throw it all up. I used to take pride in the fact that you'd never thrown up with me before, but now the streak is broken. It comes out like a fountain, the seafoam green curve of liquid straightening and sagging in time with the pump of your heart. Your parents kick your grandma and me out, saying we shouldn't have stayed so late, that it's too much excitement for you. On the drive back to my place, your grandma worries that your parents' marriage is falling apart. I try to shake the last image of you apologizing over and over, standing in the sink while your dad rinses you off. There's one game you play that I just can't stand. It's the one where you put me in a closet or behind the blackout drapes in Sebastian's room, then lean in close to whisper the instructions. I'm gonna go, and you're gonna be in the dark, and you're gonna be so lost, and I'm not coming back, okay? I can't wait until you stop playing that game. Thank you.
1: Let's go ahead and give them another round of applause for their reading. what we're going to do now, we're going to open it up to an audience Q&A. So if you have a question, I can walk around with my hand mic and get your question. So just if you raise your hand, yes. Here, I'll come over here to you.
4: Hi. Thank you so much for reading to us. Um, I'm just curious, with the workshop, do you tend to give a specific kind of a prompt or do you have some kind of discussion with them first and then something comes out of that to kind of initiate the writing, especially for people
1: that maybe haven't written before.
2: Um, In my experience, uh, I usually just go with a really simple formula, which is bring in the best writing I can find, read it together, discuss it, and then have everybody write modeled after that example. Um, I mean, it's not... (laughs) Not anything too innovative, but I just do it like that. Um, usually in a nine-week class, I give everybody in the class a composition notebook um, and tell them that if they write 20 pages a week, that composition notebook will be full by the end of the nine weeks, and then, you know, they'll get a new one. Um, and I find for people who maybe haven't written a lot, um, at the beginning, just quantity actually is really, really important. Just moving your hands, your hands kind of know what your head sometimes doesn't. So I really just try to focus on volume.
3: Yeah, I, wanna, I wanted Sarah to answer that first because when I knew I was going to Fort Lyon, what I did was I emailed Sarah. <laughs> and I said, listen, <laughs> I've never done this before. What, what, is, what is working for you in the past? Um, so, so that's what I did because that's what she told me she did. And uh, yeah, and it was great. We, we read things between like one and three pages so that they can read it right there. Um, yeah, and then we did basically like imitation writing exercises, and then everybody reads and, and shares, and that's often was the best part. They you know they, students love to hear from each other. Um, they learn a lot about each other. I mean, there were people who would say to other people in the in the workshop, "God, I've known you for six months, and I didn't know any of that about you." Um, there was even in fact fe- so that piece um, the piece about the couch from Liz. She was in a, a meeting with her case manager like two days ago and she said, and they were like in the middle of something and she kind of stopped and she said, actually, you know what, can I read you something that I wrote today? Um, my case manager like, yeah, sure. And so she read her the piece about the couch and her case manager started crying and said to her, we've been working together for, I forget how long, like at least six months, eight months, whatever it was. We're gonna be there for so long and I feel like I know you so much better in a page and a half than any of the work we've done like with me as your case manager. Um, and that was really cool to see here, so. Uh yeah, the, when, when they, people reading and sharing is always the best part. Yeah.
1: Next question.
4: Can each one of you, number one I really want to thank you because it's so true that you can know somebody for two years but until you're in a writing group um, I've experienced it that You know you know people you get to know pieces of people that you never would know in a normal kind of social situation and so thank you for sharing um deeply moving both of you can each one of you share something that you've learned you know from your time there because i think teaching is about learning um thank you
3: I mean for me it, w- what really helped was was it helped me not be quite so precious about writing cuz I'm kind of I'm one of those writers and I god knows I'm not the only one who like thinks they need perfect conditions to write it's like okay after everything else is done and the floor is clean <laughs> and I have a better job and you know <laughs> you know then then I'm going to I'm going to write this thing that I'm thinking about and it was and it was great because I would go in there and uh and yeah, we'd read and, and then it would be like, okay, here's a prompt, you have 20 minutes, go. And everyone just would dive in and write amazing stuff. Like I wish more people had, had given me stuff because people wrote some in, insanely good things. And, um, and it really helped me not be quite so precious about thinking that I need like these exact conditions. There was a guy who came to the workshop, he had like just gotten to Fort Lyon, he was like still, you know, he was still kind of, his body had not readjusted to being sober and he had been awake for like four days. And you could tell, and and I don't, and I saw him in the mess hall, and I, I I would just bug the hell out of everybody. Everybody I saw, I'd be like, hey, come to the writing workshop. And so I said, come down, and he actually did. And when we came time to write, I thought he was gonna just fall asleep on the on the counter. Like that's what I would have done. Like he 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 looked horrible. I was like, he's gonna fall asleep because it's dead silence for 20 minutes. And instead, by the time it was over, he had this amazing piece. And Yeah, and I'm the kind of, and so I'm like, God, what am I doing that I like think I need like the perfect meal and the perfect this, and I'm kind of too tired, and I'm too wired, and like why, like I I've got to stop doing that. Like these people are modeling for me like how to be a better writer, and I need to like do a better job of following that example. Um, So that was the biggest thing that I learned there.
2: Well, I expect that I will learn a whole set of new lessons from you know the new people that I meet at Fort Lyon next month. I guess just in general, from from teaching in these kinds of situations, uh, you know, one just on a personal level, not really as a writer, which I already knew, but um, really like hits me every single time I do a class. uh, Is just that I am a beneficiary of just the dumb luck of the birth lottery, you know. I in no way deserve the family that I am so grateful to have. And with um, you know one tiny alteration here or there, the trajectory of my life could have been so different and I wouldn't be the teacher in this situation, I would be the student. And that is very, very clear to me every single time that I teach in one of these situations. As a writer, I would say, yeah, I got that lesson too. <laughs> and I have to keep, Keep relearning it. Um, But also that um, the writers that I respect in the world are not necessarily the ones who uh, win the prestigious awards. They're the ones who remain sort of like in the real world, writing with people who write because they have something they deeply need to say. Um, and so those are like the kinds of writers and the kinds of books that I really continue to seek out. Whereas when I started teaching this, I was you know, enrolled in an MFA program, and I think I was very much taken by the allure of sort of the prestige and esteem that MFA programs um, offer, which you know, is an illusion anyway, but um, <laughs> you know, I, I was very taken by that prospect. Um, that you could live kind of a charmed life as a writer. And I think this work has taught me that I'm really not that interested in how that works.
1: We've got time for one more question.
0: Um,
4: so I just wanted to say thank you for coming. This is my very first time here, so I picked a good night to come. Um, but. I know a little bit about the Fort Lyon program, and I was wondering if there were any ways that we here at Lighthouse, as individuals, could be more directly involved. Um, I mean, I know that there are ways to help people in our own communities, but it seems like really good work you guys are doing, so.
3: I, we talked about clothes, right? Yeah, so me and Sheila were talking on the drive down. Um, w- w- women's clothing, in particular, they need down there. I think men's is pretty good shape, but women's really need, they really need women's clothing. Um, a lot of people come in with nothing. I mean, I, there was a guy in my dorm who, I was there for a month. He was in the sh- same shirt every day. Um, you know, so that, that uh, yeah, so definitely um, clothing, they, the, the size of the Fort Lyon Library has, like, more than doubled because of Lighthouse, um, but they can always use more. There's a lot of voracious readers down there, and they're really proud of their library, and... Um, and uh, supporting it is always great. Do you have more? Yeah.
4: So, um, the clothing, I did a clothing drive a couple years ago, and it was great. You know, I mean, there are people like everybody else that want nice things to wear, you know, those things. Um, always books. I was able to take down some really nice journals when I went down this year, and it was like they were amazed. So, um, Things that help them value themselves as writers. I, I think Lighthouse will be sending more swag down. I'm talking to Michael about that. But um, you know, things that uh, I don't know help. I mean, they're people who have the same needs that we do. So it's just kind of like um, things that might brighten their lives. I think. Um, and uh, there's some people down there starting, talking about starting a music program, and um, I'm thinking about, um, you know, in the Denver area, and a lot of people I know, we might do an instrument drive so that they have instruments to play down there, so, you know, things to keep in mind.
1: We'll go to our le- other question over here, because we have a little bit more time.
3: Um, Writing always makes me feel better. I've never been quite sure why. What's what's your take on that?
2: How does it work? (laughs) There's a guy at the University of Texas named James Pennebaker, and he's the guy who's done all the neurological research on this. So uh, if you're interested in really like, why does this work? uh, He has been doing research on it for about 30 years, and one of the most incredible things he's found is that writing for 10 minutes a day improves your chances of recovering from breast cancer by something um, incredibly substantial. Um, and this is across the board with all kinds of things. I mean, writing actually does make you feel better physiologically, but I mean, also psychologically. Yeah, so Pennebaker, he's your dude.
3: <laughs> I also think that one of the other nice things, I think there was some study recently about, I'm gonna butcher this, but it was something about how like being a, like, doing a lot of reading, Makes you more empathetic, mm-hmm. like than other people, and I think I think the same goes for writing. And I think um, one of the ways that was really powerful in the workshop is um, I was trying to show folks all the different ways you can write about yourself. So we turned ourselves into recipes. We turned ourselves, you know, we did some hermit crab essays like that. We turned ourselves into, you know, instruction manuals. We wrote letters to ourselves from fake people. Um, we did all kinds of stuff. And and one of the things I I wanted t- I was trying to get at by having us embody other people writing to us. The last thing we did was you know write a letter to yourself either. A past version of yourself, a future version of yourself, or put yourself in the future and write to yourself now. What, what would you say to yourself when you're five years sober? What would you want to say to yourself now? Um, or what would you want to say to the 15 year old version of yourself who you know was going through what they were going through? And one of the powerful things about that is that it, it makes you put yourself in someone else's shoes. So people were embodying their you know parents that they haven't spoken to, or in some cases didn't know, and in some cases that the person gave them up. Um, and it, but instead of just leaving it at that, being like, yeah, that person like we don't get along, we don't talk, like fuck them, I'm done with them, really having to Kind of embody their perspective. Um, it was a real exercise in empathy. At, and, and again, as folks are trying to work steps, you know, I was going to a lot of meetings, a lot of CA meetings, a lot of life ring meetings, a lot of different support meetings because I wanted them to know that I'm not just here to like, you know, teach a workshop. Like I, I'm like, you know, where we, you live in the dorm, and they, and, which by the way, they love that. They, you know, they I, when people would meet me, they'd say, "Oh, great, you're doing writing workshop. Okay, cool. Where are you where are you staying? Are you in La- Atlanta?" And I say, "No, I'm in I'm in Building Eight. I'm in I'm in Room 117." And they'd go, w- "What?" Like, you're, you're living at the fort in the dorm? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, I, and you could tell that meant a lot to people. Um, sorry, that was a tangent. But anyway, yeah, so.
1: Um,
4: thank you. Um, I've been a part of Fort Lyon the program here s- for four years, and I... C- I get to go down a couple times a year and I sit in on workshops and uh, it's a it's very special for me to be able to experience and and Michael was really a, uh, did an incredible job there were an unscheduled workshop yesterday there were 15 people that came and that's uh, and they all did beautiful writing before I got home I got an email from one of our uh, people in the workshops who actually I had had an encounter with before he was at Fort Lyon um, on this, on Colfax where he read me a poem I recognized him he's now at Fort Lyon um, but uh, it's a really special experience and I would say the other thing about it is you don't really understand what it is what the program's like and how it is a community and people support each other and you are welcome to go down and visit any time and it will change your mind about the importance of the work down there. So um, absolutely, you know, we can hook you up, it's good. But thank you and I'm so appreciative and it was great uh, spending three and a half hours in the car and 101 degrees with Michael on the way up, (laughs) on the way back, (laughs) thanks. Thanks everybody.